0: with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word and as we approach this very special and important portion of your word, I pray that you would calm and quiet our hearts. God, I pray that you would put away any temptation, God, to overlook this time. I pray, Lord, that it would be a labor of love, that we would consider Jesus our great high priest. And Father, we ask that by your spirit, through this word, that the fruit of our labors would that would be that we would love and worship your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you be glorified and honored in this time. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. Are you a person who is more glass half empty? Or are you someone who is someone that likes to see the glass half full? I remember hanging out with my eighth grade friend, Brad Olson, telling me about what this meant until the eighth grade Um, I had not ever heard someone use this metaphor. But apparently, someone who sees a glass that is half empty tends to see life in more pessimistic ways. They happen to be the people who point out the negative before they ever point out the positive. That they always have this bent towards talking about what they don't have compared to the person who sees a glass half full. Hey, I still got half a glass of water. Where they see things in a more optimistic light. And they're not always so negative. And that although there might be misery and pain and chaos in the world, there's still flowers to see. Hugs and smiles to be given. A glass half empty, however, seems to be the typical way most people view the Bible. That some people like to view the gospel and the story of God and His glory as a very pessimistic message. At times, this has been personified where preachers are labeled hell and brimstone preachers, where all Christians care about is. Hell, and you better do this, and you're not doing this enough. And if you don't repent, you will burn in a lake of fire and sulfur for all of your days. And yet, we see some of these people, right? You go to a Huskies game, you go to a baseball game, they're in a big microphone. And it's funny, as a Christian, you try to reconcile these things. You're like, you know, he's quoting the Bible. Technically, what he's saying is kind of right, but for some reason, I find myself to have no acquaintance with him at all. Is that what the Christian gospel is? Is it all warning? Sometimes we have conversations where we say, "Man, I feel like it's just all vinegar and no what sugar." sugar. Is that is that what the Christian gospel is? is it's all vinegar. It's all kind of that just hard tasting stuff. So far in the letter of Hebrews, it seems as so. Warning after warning to not miss the rest of God. Examples to be heeded. Things to consider. Commands to listen more closely. Because if you don't, if you do not heed these warnings, you have salvation to miss out on. And it seems as if the author of Hebrews so far has kind of just given us more of that glass half empty. And I wonder, is there a sense in which at times the Bible wants us to be both? Do we have to be labeled just a glass half empty person or just a glass half full at times there is real reasons to be pessimistic there are real reasons to be all vinegar have you ever met someone who's only ever positive no matter what you say no matter what you do they just always seem to kind of just well at least it's not raining out my dog has cancer I'm going to put it down well, at least you can get a new puppy now. It's like, dude, yeah, man. Like, that's what you kind of say in your mind. Like, dude, shut up, man. But have you ever met someone who's always negative? And it's like, man, dude, I'm so happy, man. I I got that. I got an A minus. Like, well, A minus is pretty good, but I got an A. Oh, you know. It's like, well, hey, man, I had a great Christmas. Well, do you know that most kids in the world don't get anything for Christmas? And you should, why do you got to go rain on my parade? And I say all this because at times we need both. We need someone to put the vinegar in our life to consider about this gospel, that if you do not heed it and not enter God's rest, you have the wrath of God coming for you. But yet it finally seems, as the author of Hebrews begins now to finally close up on his first section of Hebrews, to not just kind of give us the vinegar, but also to show us the beautiful glories and treasures of the gospel. The more I read and the more I study the Hebrews, the more I, I really do think it was preached by a pastor who knew these people. I think he realized that he's coming across a little too negative. And so now he begins to shift because the Christian gospel never ends on a pessimistic note. It will tell you of your sin. It will tell you, if you look down in chapter four, verse 12, verse 13, excuse me, that God's word... Is so powerful that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. God's word is so penetrating that it leaves us guilty before God. It leaves us naked and exposed. This Bible cuts through every excuse, every lie we hide behind, every mask we try to cover our identity with. It says, this is who you are, and you are held accountable for all of your sin. It, the Bible is pessimistic. But it never ends on that note. It always ends on but God but God in Christ. And that is the very transition we see in these couple little verses. And can I just tell you, there are just some passages in the Bible that speak in louder volumes than others. It's all God's word and it's all important. And I'm not saying I don't like other parts of scripture, but there's just some parts where, man, I just call them boil down passages. Or, man, it's just boiling down the essence of the Christian faith into a small little package. And I think this little section right here is one of those passages. I just think this is the passage that we need to keep in our back pocket, have it memorized, to, just to know it, just for to easily fall off our tongue. This is in a, a wonderful passage for us, very good summary of what the author has been trying to sing these first four chapters. And so here's what it's all about. And this can give you like one line summary here. Since Jesus is our high priest, let us not shrink away from our hope. Since Jesus is our great high priest, let us not fall or shrink away from this hope that we have. And what I want us to see. And this little passage of three verses, now you think this is shorter, that I would go shorter. But that's not always the case. But what I would like to do for us is to consider two confidences that we can have in the Christian life because Jesus is our great high priest. And so I'll give you the, the two confidences off the bat. Here we go. We can confidently hold our confession of faith. And secondly, we can confidently approach God. Because Jesus is our high priest, we can confidently hold our confession of faith, too. We can confidently approach God. Let's go ahead and look down back at the passage. Since then. Now, again, sometimes when we study the Bible, we must give careful attention to words and to details. How many of you who have never read Harry Potter would go to the fourth book in Harry Potter, pick it up, go to page 100, third paragraph, Tenth line, sixth word. Does anyone know what that says? I don't either. Um, how many of us would start reading from there, read a few sentences, and feel like, oh yeah, I know what's happening in this book. No one would, because that's an insane way to read. You're not actually reading for information if you skip the first hundred pages. And in the same sense, when we read the Bible... Sometimes we jump in the middle of something and we forget the context. Since then. Does anyone have a different word in their translation other than since then? Anyone? Therefore. Therefore. Right? Now, when you get a contrast word like that, since or therefore, you kind of have to be reminding yourself of what comes before it. And what comes before it is that great passage we considered last week about the word of God. And again, I already mentioned this a little bit. I think the author of Hebrews knows that what, what he just said about the word of God is cutting. It's hard. None of, no one who takes the Bible seriously can walk away and say like, oh, no big deal. Someone who looks at the word of God and sees what it teaches can only walk away with a view of self like, man, I'm in big trouble. If God's word tells me of my sin, tells me that I must give an account to him and it completely exposes me, I'm in trouble. Right? Did you ever get caught red-handed with your hand in the cookie jar? Or maybe at Halloween was a better one for me, because we get like a truckload of candy. No, you get three pieces, right? Okay. <laughs> Second mom went to <of> the bathroom. <laughs> You know, and they put it up really high, so you gotta climb quick, man. It's like Tarzan up in my kitchen, like and um, and one time I like came down really quick and I fell uncovered and landed like this and it was all <laughs> bad. My mom felt so bad for me, she just let me have the candy without any right?
1: <laughs>
0: So when you get caught though red handed doing something, you're just like I can't I, I I'm, I'm caught. Guys, can I tell something? That is what the word of God does to us. You are caught red-handed. You are exposed before him who you must give an account. That is not a light thing to skim by. But yet, although that's true, the author of Hebrews says, but therefore, his great words, we have a great high priest. Now, to understand anything, we have to understand what that meant for the original audience. See, these are people who are probably very well accustomed with the Jewish priestly order. The high priest was the line of Aaron. And Aaron's son would have a son, who would have a son, and is always the firstborn, who got to be the person who became the high priest. And here's why the high priest is so important. Because on that one special day of year, the day of atonement, the high priest would get to pass through all three inner parts of the temple. And he'd go into the most sacred spaces in all of the earth called the Holy of Holies. And that is where the presence of God was. Once a year, the high priest would do this. And that is where he would make sacrifice for sins. But look at our high priest. Look what it says about him. He hasn't passed through some man made tabernacle or temple. What is he then? We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And that's what the author of was saying, like, we don't we don't have some man who's gonna die one day. We don't have some guy who kind of just puts on all these sacred clothes and does all these ceremonial things and washings just so they can kind of walk through the veil. We have Jesus who has transcendently gone before the real throne of God. And as we know, a priest is someone who represents the people to God and God to the people. You know, I was reading today the Heidelberg Catechism and kind of preparing this sermon a little bit. But, but the fact that Jesus is both God and both man meant that he is the ultimate priest. That every time a priest would die, a new one would come, right? But Jesus is the once and for all priest. He completely abolishes all of that. Aaron, you were cool and all you did, your job, but you're done. And Jesus now becomes this great high priest. And because he is so great, because he has passed through the heavens and is accepted by God, here is what the author of Hebrews says that we ought to do. Let us hold fast our confession. What is the confession? What confession is he talking about here? Let me give you two things of what I think he means here about confession. One, our confession in who Jesus is. That Jesus is not just a made-up person, but Jesus is, in fact, the true son of God grounded in history who actually lived as a man. In essence, remember, these people, they're being tempted to shrink away from Christ. They're tempted to look at Jesus as kind of a passive person. They're tempted to look at Jesus as kind of like, yeah, he's just a role model. They're tempted to look at Jesus like, oh yeah, he's my homeboy. They're tempted to look at Jesus as someone who just kind of did some really important things with teaching. But no, the author of Hebrews says he he is our great high priest. We must hold our confession that Jesus is the God Man, the sinless Savior who died. For our sins. So, therefore, our confession is not just who he is and then existed. Our confession is the very gospel itself. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 10 that whoever believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is the Lord shall be saved. This is the confession that every single person gives when they become a Christian. If you want to know what it means to be a Christian, that is it. It is to recognize that I have done nothing but sinned against God and deserve wrath and hell. But God, in his great love, provided Jesus, the Son of God, and he lived the perfect life, and he died on the cross. And by being raised from the dead three days later, it was to signify that God accepted that sacrifice for our own behalf. And that whoever believes in this, which means to trust in Christ and to turn away from their sin. And to confess this with their mouth, that I am a Christian, I follow Jesus. He died for my sins. That is how you become a Christian. That is what it means to have faith. And the author of Hebrews is saying, because Jesus is so great, because he has done what no one else can do, because he is the son of God, don't shrink away from that. Don't simply look like one time I was in high school and yeah, I said I was a Christian, but now I'm no longer. Don't look at Christianity and this confession that I give about who Jesus is and his lordship and make it just a season of life. Again, the context of Hebrews 4 is the people who heard the good news preached to them, but what did they do? they hardened their hearts and they didn't actually enter the rest. So can I just tell you guys, like, don't ever be ashamed of your confession in Christ. Don't ever shrink away from that. We have a high priest who has done more for us than any other person could possibly do for us. We have a high priest who came down from earth. He condescended, as we just sang. And he died for your sins so that you would not have to suffer the right penalty of it. How could we ever, the author of Hebrews is making the connection, how could we ever shrink away from our faith in Christ, and it's interesting here. I think he, I think he anticipates something in us. When we hear about Jesus and when we hear about God, there's a temptation. I mean, and I think it's a warranted temptation sometimes. Of Jesus is so unlike us. I mean, who else can pass through the heavens like Jesus did? And to kind of even hear that you're kind of like, that just seems so foreign to me. Jesus is God. He can do all things. He can walk in water. He can make bread with snapping his fingers. But do you notice what he says here in verse 15? It's almost again, he's anticipating us, distancing ourselves from this high priest. Look what he says in verse 15. Great verse. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But rather, we have one in every respect or every way, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It may seem that this high priest, God, is so foreign and different than us. But guys, this goes back to chapters 2 and to chapters 3, that Jesus must become like his brothers, That Jesus had to become a man. And because he became a man, guys, guess what? He knows the temptation that you face. He knows what it's like to cheat, to, to be tempted to cheat, to get ahead. He knows what it's like to be tempted to look at a woman lustfully. He knows what it's like to suffer grief, loss. He completely understands you. Do you realize the comfort there is in that? (laughs) The God of all of life humbled himself to the point of suffering the things that we are tempted with This is a high priest who's like, hey, I get it. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. But I never did not want sin. I think this also brings up this interesting idea of is being tempted with sin wrong. You know, there's this really interesting passage people quote a lot. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 that anyone who looks after a woman lustfully in their heart has already committed adultery. <laughs> wow. That's really tempting. That's really like, convicting, I guess. Um, but but here, here's what I just think. I just want to just pull out this idea really quick. Is it wrong to be tempted? Clearly it can't be. Because if Jesus was tempted and he was sinless. It's not always wrong to be tempted. But here is what I think Jesus even means in that passage. There is a sense in which I can notice beauty and be attracted to something. But there's a line that is crossed when I take that attraction and that beauty and I put lustful intentions in my heart and therefore become an adulterer. See, Jesus never once crossed that line. He was tempted in every regard, in every respect, just like us. He never once did he sin. And you know what's so great? The text tells us Why is that so great that he never sins? Because he's able to sympathize. Do you ever have problems and you tell them to someone and they just try to fix them for you? I do that. But sometimes can I just tell you like the best thing that you have in Christ is just sympathy. He gets it. He understands. These are blessed truths for us to ponder, to consider, to have them in our back pocket. And because we can confidently hold our confession, we need to be people who know that Jesus is not just a side gig. He's not just someone who I kind of like, oh, I think Jesus is kind of cool. No, Be someone who holds fast our confession because I have a high priest who became just like me. He's proud to call me brother. He was tempted in every way just like me, but without sin. That's a God worth loving and serving. But because Jesus is our high priest, we can also confidently approach God. Look what he says in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The gospel does not just save us from the impotent wrath of God, but it gives us a high priest who can sympathize with us and it gives us access to God in a way that no one else can. Because Jesus is our high priest. And he mediates for us. And because he shares in us, he shares his righteousness with us, we know that I can personally come before God confidently. And because it is Reformation Week, I will mention the Reformers always talked in opposition to the Roman Catholic Church about this idea of having assurance of your faith. They called it the damnable doctrine of doubt. There wasn't a person in Europe under the Roman Catholic Church in the year 1500 who believed that when they died that they would be with God. They would have to go to purgatory. They'd have to work off all of their sins. They'd have to make sure they did enough religious things to even be made right with God. But yet they still didn't know for sure that when they died because maybe they committed a mortal sin without them even knowing it. And yet when the Reformers discover the gospel, that you are saved by faith alone and nothing that you do, now right now you can be confident that God will accept you just as he accepts Christ. And you can be confident of this. I don't have to shrink away from God and be fearful of him. I can boldly approach him and have confidence on my last day that when I die, I shall see God face to face. Tim Keller has this quote. He says, what person can wake up the king in the middle of the night and ask for a drink of water? You think of a king, you know, a thousand years ago, imagine one of the peasants going up to the king and saying, hey, king, can you give me a glass of water? Any of his, you know, royal court doing this would just be like, a mortal offense. Even even the queen would even ask the king to do such a thing. But who would? A child. Because of our high priest, because of the imputed righteousness that we have from Christ, we get to boldly come before the King of all kings, the creator of the universe. Anytime we want. Requests help, mercy, grace, and it's yours. Like, I almost want to scream right now and say, How incredible. Like, are you kidding me? How many of you can walk up to Pennsylvania Avenue, knock on the White House? I want to talk to the president. Man, I have a hard time getting like, people who I know who say they love me to respond back to my text messages and my emails. Yeah, because we have a great high priest, we can confidently come before God. And here's what we can confidently know. That we can receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Do you know what the application or the implication of this is? is that as Christians, we are being exhorted to constant and bold prayer. If if Jesus has gone through the heavens to do all this for us, why wouldn't we constantly and confidently come before God? Yet, yeah, on the flip side of this, to those who do not have Jesus as their great high priest, to those who are far from God, it is not a throne of grace to them, it is a throne of wrath. And as much as verse 16 is an encouragement, it is also yet a warning again to those who don't know Christ. Allow me just to give you a few applications about prayer. I love this verse and I'm glad for it. I'm glad it's in the Bible. Again, I think we should have it in the back pocket. But I do wonder if there's a tendency for us to see this verse as an invitation to bring every request to God and just ask Him to change our circumstances. I think it's important that when we read the Bible, we must keep in mind what other parts of the Bible say about what we're reading. So I think um, something I've learned in the Christian life is that prayer requests with Christians aren't usually that helpful. And let me explain to you what I mean by that. Um, you know, I've been a pastor, and I've, again, I've been a Christian long enough to know that when Christians come together, there's usually this time to say, does anyone have any prayer requests? Y'all, track with me so far? Mm-hmm. Maybe you've been in enough circles where you've seen this, right? Hopefully. Right? And someone throws out the prayer request Hey, I got a math test on Wednesday. Can you pray that I do good in the math test? Write it down, math test, right? Someone's like, Hey, you know, uh, my aunt in Cincinnati, never met her, but she's my aunt. She uh, lost her job and just found out that her dog has cancer. And her power went out last week, and she's just really struggling. Can you pray for her? Okay, what's her name? Um, Aunt, Aunt Aunt, Karen. Aunt Karen, right? I barely know her name. All right, we're going to pray for Aunt Karen. Now, I'm being a little hyperbolic. I, I get that. But, but more or less, so, so, so we, we pray. Um, God, help Samantha in our math test. We all know she needs it. And am uh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding sorry <laughs> you're the first person I saw had a three the But let me just say really quick here and here's why I say this there's a way in which when all we're doing and we pray is we're asking God to change our circumstances for us to be more happy now I'm not against praying for your math test but I really want to know why you care so much about your math grade because I think all of us, in a sense, we have a vision and a desire for our life, what we want it to look like, and yet when our reality is down here and the vision for our life is here, we pray that God would change our circumstances to meet the vision that we want our life to look like. And all we are doing is living a life in which we say, God, you exist to make my goals, my kingdom, and my will be done. When rather, prayer ought to be more God, help me to depend, trust, and believe in you when life is not working out the way I hoped it would. Dependent and humble prayer, approaching God confidently, is saying, God, give me the grace to follow you in the midst of hardship. God, give me help and mercy when I'm tempted to put my identity in my circumstances and in my accomplishments. And in my situation, God, give me grace to continue to let your word of God, to let your word transform my life. Do you see how prayer is not necessarily how to get God to change his will to mine? But rather prayer ought to be, God, give me grace to live a life of your kingdom come and your will be done. See, ultimately, the gospel doesn't leave us on just a pessimistic note. It tells you the glory that you have a high priest who is constantly ever living and pleading for you. He is standing before the Father and he's saying, this one, love this one, And because we have a great high priest, because Jesus has done what no one else does, because he's purchased our sins with his very blood, let us not shrink away from our confession. Let us love Jesus. And because we have this great high priest, because he mediates perfectly once and for all, for all of eternity, let us be people of prayer. A lot of people who take advantage of this throne of grace knowing that God, even in the midst of your sins, has come to me confidently, child. And I will give you my grace. I will give you my help. I will give you my mercy. That is a promise. You can bank on it. It doesn't matter if you've read your Bible every day this week. It doesn't matter if you've read it at all. God says, come. And so because Jesus is our great high priest, and even though the word of God exposes us, here's where we can be confident, that my sins are forgiven, that God accepts me, that God loves me, that God has eternity waiting for me, that Jesus is up right now repairing a room just for me. And I can be confident of this confession because of what Jesus has done. And I can come confidently like a child coming to the king in the middle of the night, making all of my requests because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. So the point still stands. Since Jesus is our great high priest, let us not shrink away from our hope. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our Savior who is ever living and pleading for us. And Father, we come now to you confidently and boldly before your throne of grace, and we ask for your grace, Lord, Lord, for your help, for your mercy, God, to continue to lead us on the narrow path. Lord, I ask that you give us faith to continue to sit under your word, to have our hearts exposed before it, Lord, that we may continue to see our need for this great high priest. And Lord, I pray that the fruit of our labors tonight would just be an increased love, attention, and zeal for our Savior, Jesus. Help us, Father, to not swerve from this confession. But with the help of the Spirit, give us faith, Lord, every single day to see the beauty and the glory we have in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.